Hi folks, this is Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, things that we can all do to live a better life if times get tougher, even if they don't. Coming to you once again from Arlington, Texas, with episode today 583. It's a Monday, the 10th of January, 2011, and it is a cold, cold day here in North Texas. Now, if you're up in like Minnesota or something, you're going to be angry with me for calling it cold, but it is about 28 degrees right now, and for the Dallas-Fort Worth area, that's pretty cold. I know that the weather is probably a lot colder in a lot of the United States, but we have uh, frozen roads and idiots out there today smashing around and bouncing off of each other. Makes me glad I don't make those trips anymore in the mornings going to an office. Thank you guys for uh, making it possible that this actually is what I do for a living now. Try to say that once in a while. Let me start off a Monday, first day of the week, by saying that again. Thank you uh, for the fact that I'm in my warm home talking to you guys right now instead of out there uh, risking my neck on the overpasses that are frozen over and the idiots that have no concept at all how to drive on them. Uh, before we get into today's show, which of course being a Monday show, is going to be a listener feedback show, your emails. Uh, with your questions, your thoughts, your concerns, your commentary, articles you wanted me to comment on, things like that. If you'd like to be on a show like this in the future, you can send uh, whatever you have for me to uh, to jack at the survivalpodcast.com. Put in the subject line, question for Jack, and I'll try to get you on the air. Before we start taking those questions today, though, let's go ahead and uh, knock out our housekeeping. Housekeeping item one. Let's take care of our sponsors. They do a lot to help take care of you. Sponsor of the day, number one, Sawtooth Tactical. I love Sawtooth because, number one, real American company serviced by a real American who cares about preparedness as much as you do, who works really hard to make sure that every order is fulfilled accurately and properly, and when there is an occasional hiccup, does whatever it takes to make it right. And then on top of it, he's got all this real cool tactical stuff to sell us. So check out Sawtooth Tactical for everything from Magpul magazines to Maxpedition bags and everything else you can think of to help you live that tactical lifestyle. Check out Sawtooth Tactical. Uh, next up today, BulkAmmo.com. One of the more exciting sponsors that I brought on in recent times. I'm really excited to have them. Um, everybody out there uh, that listens to this show probably at least is considering firearms ownership. Most of you probably are uh, partaking of that Second Amendment right and uh, defending that right by partaking of it. But a gun without ammunition is a club Remember that. So ammo is important. It's important that we store it for preps. It's important that we have it so we can practice with it. And it's important so that if we need it, it's there. And uh, ammo can be quite expensive. Buying enough, you know, buying a 500 or a thousand rounds of ammo for a certain gun may cost more than the gun itself. So you need to save money where you can for your common caliber types. Check out bulk ammo. Great pricing, great service, fast shipping. Uh, next up today, remember, check out the TSP Gear Shop. Hottest thing we have going right now are the TSP AOCS Copper Round Coins. They are minting now. They should start shipping next week. At least that's when we think they're going to start shipping. Um, we're waiting for them to be sent from the minting facility, which is, uh, I think, in Pennsylvania, 
over to our gear shop in California so we can begin distributing them. Uh, but they should be on the way now or very shortly. Uh, so those of you who have pre-ordered them, they're coming soon. Those of you who have not ordered them and thought, well, I'll order them when they get in the shop. We did 11,000 of them for the first run. Uh, there's about 2,000 left to be ordered that are going to be available for inventory. They may sell out, you know, very quickly. So if you'd like to get some of these on the first run, you want to do it now. And I don't know how long it's to be before we do a second run. They're not going away. They're going to be a product we have in the gear shop long term. But there is a minting process to get them done. So um, it's something you probably want to look at picking up as soon as possible if you'd like some of them. Last but not least, consider joining the Member Support Brigade. Do that. You get exclusive content available only to members. You support the show at about 20 cents an episode with your contribution of $5 a month or $50 a year. And in return, you get discounts to over 20 vendors. You get uh, a bunch of videos that are available nowhere else. You get over $100 worth of free ebooks. It's a, it's a program that pays back tenfold what your investment on it is and, again, helps support the show. And with that, let's go ahead and take the uh, first email today. This is a pretty interesting one. It actually comes from one of our moderators on the forum a gentleman that we know there is Heavy G, and he says, Jack, are there parallels between the survivalism of the 1970s and modern survivalism? I think there are, but modern survivalism is way better, more focused on a better life if times get tough, and no racism. Uh, here's a thoughtful TSP forum thread on the topic, and he gives me a link. I'll link to the forum thread. I'm not going to read from it. It's up to you if you want to go read the forum thread. A lot of great thoughts there, a lot of real interesting points, and something if you're on the forum or can get on the forum might be a great place to comment. But let me give you my view of this. First of all, of course, there's parallels because regardless of what the motivation was for prepping, in the 1970s, people that were concerned about survivalism, and in 2010, people that are concerned about survivalism, have to eventually look and go, if the systems of support go away, what do we need? We need food, we need shelter, we need water, we need energy, and we need security. And those five factors have driven... Everybody who's really analyzed the survival concept every time, if it was done right. Now, were there some complete wax jobs in the 1970s? Yes. Um, were, they, were there some people that were completely, not just wax jobs, but way out, tinfoil hat nutters in the 1970s? Yeah. We got them today, folks. Seriously. We got some people that might be worse than those guys were. So, to me... To even look at that aspect of 1970s survivalism and use it to compare to what we talk about here on this show and all the other great communities out there are doing, you know, survivalist boards, Kevin's community, Ron Hood's community uh, at survival.com. Uh, I mean, we sometimes we get myopic. There's a lot of great people out there doing a lot of great things. Backwoods Home Magazine is a great resource for preppers, and they have a whole community uh, built around that with their forum system and Uh, Frugal Squirrels is another great community. I mean, there's a ton of people out there other than TSP that are talking about this stuff and doing this stuff. There's a great survival board on AR-15. I mean, there's, there's great people everywhere doing these things today. And I think the biggest difference is, one, there is some motivational difference, which I'll get to in a second. But the bigger difference is the people with brains doing it, the people that are not freaking nuts out of their mind, um, they have a way to connect with each other that didn't exist in the 70s or the 80s or even much of the 90s, and that's the Internet. The Internet is what's changed survivalism, not 
not any of our individual communities, not me, not my catchphrase, you know, living a better life. I mean, it was all things that I wanted to do to help establish a market and make this comfortable for people and receptive to people. But what's really changed is all the people out there that have an IQ higher than like, you know, 40 that are into this, that are doing this for legitimate reasons can connect. And I promise you, there were thousands tens of thousands of people or more in the 1970s that were doing it for the same type of logical reasons with the same type of logical thinking that we are today. They probably weren't as successful because they didn't get group thought. And the reason that when we look in the 1970s, we see the fringe element only of survivalism is we had to rely on the media to show us what was going on. Now, if you think about it even today in 2010, when the media talks about survivalism, and I can't wait to hear how our concepts like honest money and control of our government and a government that is controlled by its people versus a people controlled by its government get spun into this latest tragedy with this congresswoman that was shot and all the other people around her that were shot and killed out in Arizona. You know we're going to get lumped into that. And I'm not going to go into that that, that tragedy today I'm going to wait until more information comes out about everything before I talk about that in depth. But my point is, whenever you look to the media to tell you about preparedness and prepping and things like that, what do we find? Oh, we're all crazy. We're all nuts. We're, we're all, you know, the, the edge of terror. I mean, we might be terrorists. Um, all of that stuff. So when you look back and say, well, look how far we've come, understand that in a lot of ways, what we've, what's made us come this far has been being able to communicate with each other. And being able to have things like survival-themed podcasts. To have things like homestead-themed podcasts, like Johnny Max and the Queen do. Um, you know, they don't really talk about survivalism. They talk about independence. And that's part of survivalism. And, you know, there's permaculture podcasts out there that talk about sustainable living. Well, that's a part, you know, that's part, I'm kind of hodgepodge of bringing that all together. And then there's communities out there that really focus on just the tactical aspects of it or just the food storage aspects of it but all of it together makes us so much more so to me the parallel is more that we can now communicate openly and honestly with each other and we can help new people come into our world without having them be being fed 100% lies these people are crazy these people are nuts there's people like me out here who can say listen do you have life insurance uh-huh yeah do you have home insurance Yeah. Do you have car insurance? Yeah. You got a boat? Yeah, I got a boat. You have boat insurance? Uh-huh. How about food insurance? Do you have any insurance on your food? I mean, how many car wrecks have you had in your life? Uh, one. How many times have you eaten in your life? Uh, every day? Okay. So which one is really more critical to your existence? Why don't you have some type of insurance on your food? What about water insurance? You know, what, do you have any insurance plan... You want to look at it that way for what happens if your house is burned to the ground. Oh, I got money to pay for it. Where are you going to live until they build you a new house? If they build you a new house. You know, how, the, the, the whole insurance thing was great until like, you know, 100,000 or 200,000 houses are destroyed. The insurance companies go, we can't afford it. At least we can't afford to do it all right now. We have to do this in stages. What if you're in the last stage? What is your plan? And by being able to present things rationally and logically to people, And we even have our fringe element, right? We got the Alex Joneses of the world. And all of that together allows us to get a more focused uh, goal together and achieve more and communicate better. 
So I think that the parallels are dramatically similar, just that we don't see them because of how much was concealed by the media. Now, the motivational factors are entirely different. Even the logical uh, you know, prepper in 1975, what are you most concerned with? Um, the Soviets, the Chinese, those are big ones. A lot of world government concerns already. Those guys look nuts. They don't look so nuts today, do they? Seriously. Um, there were a lot of people that were from the Vietnam veteran era that, that got into this movement in the 70s and early 80s. And you can look back now and understand why. Because they were treated like complete shit by our government. And they were considered nothing but bodies. And they were sprayed by our own nation with things like Agent Orange. And when it came out, after people saying it was dangerous, when it came out, it was dangerous. When it came out, it caused cancer. The guy that gave the order when he was asked, would you do it again, said it saved more lives than it cost. Of course, I'd do it again. And they came out of that. And they understood how abusive a government could be of its people. So it was natural that they gravitated toward it. And it was natural they brought a certain amount of the tactical to it. So maybe there was more of that at the time. But in the end, I think what we all were concerned about the fact that we'd look at, and we already could see the government spending too much money. We could already see, you know, the 70s, we forget how bad, you know, inflation was in the 70s. We forget about the interest rates in the early 80s that came on the other side of the inflation. So they were in touch with those realities and said, look, this has to fall apart sooner or later. And then we kind of, like, pasted it back together in the 80s and the 90s. And deluded ourselves and went back to sleep. I imagine there's a lot of old timers in this movement today that have their roots from back there. So that's my thoughts on a great thought provoking question from Heavy G Man. Thank you. Uh, let's go ahead and take another one. Here's an interesting one. I'll give you the link to the whole article, but I'm just going to read the piece that he sent me out of it and his thoughts on it. This comes from Mark. Uh, Mark says, hey, Jack, we've all been hearing about how J.P. Morgan Chase is manipulating the silver market for years, but today's story is that they're playing the copper market and possibly nickel, zinc, aluminum markets, too. He gives me a link on Market Watch, and he gives me a quote out of it. Last month, the LME reported a, that a single holder owned more than 50% of the exchange's copper. That's the London Metal Exchange, by the way, LME. So one person on the London Metal Exchange is controlling more than half of the copper Uh, and that's the biggest metal exchange there is. People familiar with the matter at the time said J.P. Morgan Chase was the holder, the Wall Street Journal reported. Single traders also own large holdings of other metals. One trader holds as much as 90% of the exchange's aluminum stocks, not physical aluminum, but aluminum stocks. In the nickel, zinc, and aluminum alloy market, single traders own between 50% to 80% of those metals, and one firm has 40% to 50% of the London Metal Exchange's tin supplies, according to the journal. Uh, and then this is back to Mark. Mark says, one has to wonder how much of this rally on Wall Street is fueled by, fueled by any reality, rather than just an assumption that rising commodity prices mean that manufacturing is up, therefore buying is back. It makes me really think seriously about selling substantial portions of my gold right now and invest the money into a large battery bank inverter in solar. I suspect my ROI on the solar over the next 10 years would be better than my ROI on gold, Mark, uh, also known as endurance on the forums. Um, maybe. Uh, let me say that I think you need to separate those two, Mark. Um, if you've made a big profit on gold and you have a lot of money in gold, And you can give yourself energy independence with that money or a portion thereof. It might be a perfect time to do it. 
Solar has gotten less expensive and more efficient, and you can do a lot more with it right now, and it's a goal for your individual independence anyway. So you're pulling from one goal, which is gold reserves, to fund another goal. So you have to ask, are you, you know, the, the big thing to me would be, are you going to stay put in this place for 50 years, 20 years, 10 I mean, how long will you be in your home? And if it's 10 years or more, it's a good angle right now. I'm not saying I advise everybody to do it, but if you get a, a survey done and you can get a, you know, you have to look at how much production, you know, how, what kind of solar exposure do you have? How well is this going to work for you? Is it straight solar? Maybe it's solar and wind combined. Get three or four different companies out there, do surveys. Give you prices, give you bids. You might not even, you might even do most of the work yourself. But figure out, you know, what the investment really is before you, you make, you know, good on it. Now, on whether or not to do that because of all this manipulation in the metal market, let me give you the other side of what could be going on here. It is true that we could have the prices being driven up by how many people control it. But the reality is, unless people are really scrambling for what's left over, one person holding 50% or 10 people holding 50% combined doesn't really change things very much. Or even 100%, or I mean even 100 people or 1,000 people holding 50% doesn't change things much. It's the last bits of it when people clamor for what's left. So usually when somebody has a big piece, the general marketplace has less to fight over and that can drive prices up. So that's usually what causes that to happen when somebody controls too much of it. But we are talking about one exchange here. And there's plenty of other ways to control, manipulate, uh, and, and invest in metals out there. So it may not be as big as they're saying, but then there could be the other thing. What do we fear in the prepper community right now more than anything economically? Hyperinflation and economic collapse. I mean, that's when we look at the United States debt load, we look at the, at the inherent underlying weaknesses of the dollar, when we look at... Um, how the, 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 the world now views the United States with distaste over the economic issues. I mean, forget the politics. Do you realize that we convinced the rest of the world to make our dollar the global economic standard? You know, and it has been for years and years and years. After we did that, we did something we said we wouldn't do. Completely went off the gold standard under Nixon. And really decoupled in 75, it was actually Ford was in office when that happened, when we made gold ownership legal in the United States again. And if you look at gold prices, they didn't really decouple until people could use dollars to buy gold again. So we did that. Then we said, but it's okay, don't worry, we won't just print money. And then we printed money, and we printed money, and we printed money, and we printed money, and we just ran away with the amount of money that we printed. And we just kept doing it. More and more and more of this money being printed like, like you know, like toilet paper. And the United States as a whole, we get, not the people so much as the government and the people making our policies, a huge amount of blame for the global recession from 2008 forward. And what did I say? What is, why did I tell you that the collapse wasn't starting in 2008? That there would be this rebound, this second go at it, and then it collapsed. People are calling it now, sending me emails, Jack, that's called a dead cat bounce. Now, a dead cat bounce, we're way past the dead cat bounce at this point. A dead cat bounce is quite brief. You know, you always say, how high can the cat bounce? But when you're going into a third year of, of what looks like a rebound of the marketplace, we're, we're past what I would call dead cat. Uh, maybe some people would differ with that, but I, I don't look at it this way. And I look at more sustainment of this perceived recovery into 2011. And I said the reason this would happen, 
So the rest of the world would rally around us and protect us because they couldn't afford for us to go down right now. But long term, once they get away from us, then they'll let us sink. So why would all of these people with so much money at risk try to control so much of these commodities to protect their assets? That's why. It's just like, you know, what it, what it is is I'm sitting here and I'm JP Morgan Chase and I have, you know, billions and billions and billions of dollars. I'm at risk if those dollars deflate, right? Or actually inflate, right? I'm a tremendous risk. Or if the currency becomes devalued tremendously or it eventually gets rebased. I have to protect my, my money for myself and my shareholders. So I put it heavily, heavily into commodities. So could this be a, a manipulation by the banks to drive the commodities up? Sure. Could it be the, the banks who are in danger of, of massive insolvency due to economic collapse and the eventual unraveling that's being hidden by, hidden by FAS 157 right now? It could be that as well. It's the banks, to me, it's the banks and the investment firms preparing for the day of reckoning. That's why they're there, not just to push the market value up. Let's go ahead and take another one. Let's look at another one that's frightening and yet has some implications that could make things short-term better, that could make the recovery look even better than it does. Um, this comes from Greg Cecil. Greg sends great stuff all the time. And he says, reason number one is sobering. Think about this. There are 401k funds starting to be cashed in at 10000 a day. Who's going to buy the stocks? No one. So if 401k stocks decrease in value, that is why I cashed in my 401k, took the penalty so I could invest in something that would hold its value. Uh, the, 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 this will not end well for everyone. And the, the link is to an article on End of the American Dream called, In 2011, the baby boomers start to turn 65. 16 statistics about the coming retirement that will drop your jaw. Here's number one. Beginning in January, on January 1st, 2011, that's now, it's already happened, every single day, more than 10,000 baby boomers will reach the age of 65. That is going to keep happening every single day for the next 19 years. Now, what Greg is saying is that these guys are going to start cashing in those 401ks. Um, I don't think they are. They're going to start sucking Social Security first. The 401k money is protected by the financial advisor, or liar as I call some of them, most of them, not all of them. If you're an advisor and you're good, I know there's some good ones out there. Most of, most of them suck at the consumer level. And what they call the 401k money is the never money. You leave that in there as long as you possibly can till they start making you take it out. So the initial um, Social Security draw... A lot of these people are going to be pulling a lot of the 401k money out. I'll also tell you this. A lot of the people that are at the upper end, they're just turning 65 this year, those baby boomers, um, don't have huge 401k holdings. A lot of them stayed out of that. A lot of them were in jobs where they relied more on pensions. They're last of the pensioners. Uh, a lot of them do, but not as many as before. The next thing is the interest rates are so low right now, and this could be you want to put your tinfoil hat on for conspiracy to keep their money in there, that their advisors are telling them, well, look, if you if you cash your stocks in and, and put it into something safe, because this is what these people should be doing now. They should be going to very safe, low-yielding investments, fixed-income investments now. Even if they're not pulling the money out, they should be selling the stocks, and they should have been selling stock all the way up to 65 They should have been getting, you know, when you look at your portfolio and you're 25, it should be heavy in stocks, at least in conventional, this is conventional wisdom, not mine. 
And then as you get older, the number of, the amount of stocks you begin to slowly decline. And you should go to more safe investments as you're going to begin relying on the money. Well, these people are fully exposed yet. So a lot of their money is going to stay in the market and stay at risk. And I know a lot of people that are past that age, they're in that same scenario. So it won't be quite the exodus at first that Greg sees coming. The good. 10,000 people a day hitting retirement age. A lot of them are going to actually retire and quit working, or a lot of them are going to leave their fields and go take a part-time job somewhere. Uh, this can help our dead cat bounce higher if you want to call it a dead cat bounce. Again, I think it's a false recovery because it's longer than a cat would bounce. Um, it may actually help unemployment figures. Because as people move out of these positions and, and retire, we have to backfill. I think half of them won't get backfilled, just to be honest with you. I, I really do. I think... Employers are going to go, I didn't really need that guy. I held on to him for his last couple of years because he was reaching retirement age and I wanted to let him retire and we don't really need somebody to do that job anymore. I think there's some of that out there and some will just get three guys that are young to pick up a third each and keep doing their job. But there's going to be a lot of replacement going on. That can make the, the bounce a little bit higher. So don't think that's good long term because Greg's right. Eventually, these people need to start living on that money And the more that Social Security, they don't get raises in it, the more they worry about their Social Security, the more people that start retiring at 62 because they want their Social Security and they're afraid it's going to go away, and they have less Social Security, more people rely on this money, the more it gets cashed in. This is a freight train eventually. I just don't think it's a freight train now. It's a freight train in a year or two. That should scare the hell out of you. Because we might be in the throes of bliss, of false recovery, when this freight train really starts to hit. I told my financial advisor about this three years ago, and he said, don't worry. And basically his answer was, the financial advisory community, <laughs> jackasses, are going to keep these old people invested for years and years after their retirement. Because it's still the best place for their money. Because if you're 65... And you have a life plan to live to 95, you still have 30 years before you're taking out the last of your money. Well, some portion of that money should still be invested for the long term. 30 years is a long time. So their plan is to keep the old people invested. Uh, let's look at a couple of other ones. 35% of Americans over the age of 65 rely almost entirely on Social Security payments alone. That's another reason that this, you know, doesn't cause quite the exodus from the market, uh, that, that, you know, Greg sees. A lot of these people don't have 401ks. A lot of these people are not the high earners that are in the tech fields and things like that. Those are all the 30 and 40-somethings right now. The tweeners and the Gen Xers. Uh, people like my wife and myself. For those that have never heard tweeners, the tweener generation is the generation between X and the boomers. Those are the tweeners. right? And, and the tweeners and the Xs Man, they're the ones that have been dutifully just throwing that money in the 401k. 25%, 20%, whatever it is. You know, whatever they can afford it, throw it in there. They don't look at it. They're the ones with $13 trillion sitting in there. You've got to think about that. And this is just the beginning of that damn break. Approximately three out of four Americans start claiming Social Security benefits at the moment they're eligible at 62. Again, this means this has already been going on for three years. Three quarters of these people have been bailing at 62. Uh, my father bailed at 62 because his exact words were, 
I don't think it will be there forever. And I better get what I can while I can. Uh, here's another one. It's been reported that $33.7 billion uh, in Illinois teacher retirement system is 61% underfunded on the verge of complete collapse. So all those teacher-funded pensions in Illinois about to go away. That's probably the case everywhere. Remember my Seven Deadly Cracks article where I said that, that states and cities going bankrupt and cutting benefits. Well, this, the teacher thing is really a state benefit. Here's uh, number 16. According to a recent AARP survey of baby boomers, 40% of them plan to work until they drop. So, four out of ten say, I ain't retiring at 65, I ain't retiring at 68, I'm retiring when they won't let me come anymore or I'm dead. And they, they're doing that because they feel they have to. My father-in-law and uh, his girlfriend, I guess is the best way to frame this, is a lady he met after his wife passed away, um, both worked late into their 70s. Uh, in fact, he worked until he was 80. She worked until she was 78. And they did so because they financially could not afford to retire. And they worked at an age, and then they said, okay, when, when I can have enough money left, according to my advisor, to live to about 95 before I die, I'll quit. So a lot of that's going on, too. Sobering. So we have a lot going on with this. It's a great article. I will link to it from today's show notes, and you can uh, read the entire thing for yourself. Um, the next one is, let's go to something totally different. Uh, Jason says, uh, Jason from PA says, I'd like to start a couple of varieties of nut trees on our new property. What nut producing trees reach, reach maturity the quickest? I like most nuts, walnut, pecan, hazelnut, or chestnut, so I'm open to possibilities. Um, walnuts, especially the English walnuts, which is what people generally like, uh, take a long time to produce. Ten or more years to get any real production. Pecans, you're looking at real levels of production, ten years. Um, chestnuts, you can get some production in five years with some of the hybrid uh, European-American crosses, uh, but real production, you're again looking at a decade, long term. Um, hazelnuts, you can get good hazelnut production in four to five years because it's more of a bush or a shrub. I'm going to get the way to pronounce this wrong, but there's a, a, a nut called a chingapin or chingapin or something, chinapin, something like that, very similar to a hazelnut. Uh, much more indigenous to the southeast than Pennsylvania, but that is also a very quick producing uh, uh, item. Uh, another one is there are certain varieties of black walnut. I think Thompson black walnut uh, is, is probably the earliest producing and thinnest shelled black walnut. Um, but it's still a lot harder to, to crack than, you know, an English walnut, Carpathian walnut, something like that. Uh, but it's going to produce for you and grow much faster, and it's a beautiful timber tree. Uh, black walnut is just a gorgeous, fast-growing timber tree, uh, and it has quite a few other uses. It's also toxic, uh, some of its, the things that it excretes to certain plants, so you need to look at certain plant interactions and plant it in a place where it's not going to interfere with other things that you're trying to grow. Uh, but it's a great wildlife food as far as squirrels go as well. Um, but most of them are going to take a long time. The other one you didn't mention, but probably one of the fastest-growing producers for nuts, is almond. If you look at almond, you're looking at the same type of production timeline as a peach tree. An almond and a peach are highly related. Basically, man took one to one extreme and one to the other extreme. One, we're going to make the outer coating nice and thick and juicy, and we have a peach. The other one, we're going to make the, the seed and the kernel highly edible and the shell thin, and it's basically, they're pretty much the same thing uh, if you look back on the evolutionary tree. 
So I would say if you want nuts in production in five to seven years uh, at heavy production yields, you're probably looking at hazelnut and you're looking at almond. If you want anything else, it's a good thing to put together kind of in a food forest tiered mentality. Do your almond and your, your hazelnuts as your kind of subtree and hedge layer and then go one back letting, you know, the sun cut. So like you're planting this so the, the, the furthest south facing the sun is where your filberts, your hazelnuts, your chingapins are. And then go back from there and do your almonds and then go back from there and do your larger trees so that the larger trees, when they eventually come up, don't shade out your subtree and your hedge layer. And it's a, it would be a good nut food forest type of model to emulate. And then if you bring in other things like bushes and shrubs and things to grow around them and gild with them, then you don't have to wait forever to get some production. And if you're eating gooseberries and currants and blackberries and grapes and kiwi and all of these other things that grow at the shrub layer, it doesn't seem that bad that you wait maybe three years to get a few filberts uh, or hazelnuts, whatever you want to call them, five years to get a lot. And by the time you're getting those heavily and you're getting some almonds heavily, and now you're waiting another three or four years to get some pecans, maybe four or five more years to get some walnut, it, it starts to be a little bit easier to accept. And you got to understand that when you're planning something like this, it's something you're really planning for the future. Uh, Jason also sent a separate email that I'll mention briefly here. said, what if we could get every TSP listener, all 20,000 of us, to plant one major nut tree in 2011? A walnut, uh, a pecan, something that grows huge and majestic and plant it somewhere. If we don't have room for it, we find a place. It might take 10, 15 years, especially if they're kind of left to themselves before those trees are really producing heavily. But if we all plant one, what's 20,000 nut trees going to produce for us a decade or a decade and a half from now when many people may really be dependent on them? Great idea. Uh, but for your quick-growing stuff, I'm going to rec recommend hazelnut is probably hazelnut and almond is your probably your two best options. Even in Pennsylvania, you will find some varieties of almond that can handle into the zone five. Uh, that will hand, at zone five. Let me check real quick, but I think that'll handle just about any area in Pennsylvania. Not bad from memory. Yeah, Pennsylvania is um, almost entirely composed of zone six and five. And uh, so, if you're in five, you're going to want to look for your hardiest. And your latest blooming almonds. There's a lot of trees, folks, that if you're, you're doing your, your homesteading and you want you know, food production all, the tree will survive in your zone. But if you have frosts that are late, the problem is production. If the tree, they get a nice little bit of a couple days of warm weather, the buds come up, the tree blooms, and then a, a late frost hits it, kills the blooms before they're pollinated, And the tree cut, all the leaves fall off the tree. Generally, the tree will come back. It'll be a little sickly, but by the middle of summer, it'll look pretty good, but it won't produce for you. So one of the things you have to look at with trees in your northern climates isn't just their overall hardiness, but their bloom times. You want a tree that's going to bloom late enough to avoid a harsh late season frost. So there you go. My best recommends there for Jason, and hopefully that helps other folks as well. Let's take another one. This next one, I, I'm going to tell you who sent me the first one. Uh, it was a guy named Donald, and uh, I'm uh, real happy to, uh, to to mention him, but I have to say that, that Donald is not the only person um, that sent this in. It says, as usual, Jack, you're way ahead of the curve on this, and it's a link to an article 
that is in the Richmond Times Dispatch, but I mean, this has been everywhere this week. And people like me have been called nutters for a long time by people that say that we're, we're just insane because we say that this fluoride in the water is a danger and that you should be do, taking steps to get the fluoride out of your water, uh, that it poses health problems. Well, now the government says, well, not like the way you say, but maybe we're putting too much of it in there. Um, AP reports there's too much fluoride in the nation's drinking water. Atlanta, fluoride in the drinking water credited with dramatically cutting cavities and tooth decay, uh, although it's never been proven once to be the case, by the way. Back to the article. May now be too much of a good thing. It's causing spots on some kids' teeth, according to the Associated Press. A report indicated that the spotting problem is one reason the federal government will announce today it plans to lower the recommended limit for fluoride in water supplies, the first such change in nearly 50 years. About two out of five adolescents have tooth streaking or spottiness because of too much fluoride, a surprising government study found recently. In some extreme cases, teeth can even be pitted by the mineral, though many cases are so mild only the dentist notices it. You can almost, okay, it's like, it's like, let's massage the facts here because, gee, big government looks bad and we're mainstream media. We have to do that. So, in the, you get the end of that paragraph, though many cases are so mild, only dentists even notice this. I mean, the, the opening to this paragraph, because they have to report the facts, should really shock you. About two out of five adolescents have tooth streaking or spottiness. Two in five of our children are, and they don't even, I don't know if they even say it here later in the article. It's called dental fluorosis. And it can even cause pitting in the teeth. So the very thing that's supposed to prevent cavities is pitting the teeth. You know why? Because it's not too much fluoride is touching these kids' teeth, folks. It's because they're swallowing and it's going into their digestive system and into their body and accumulating in their freaking bones, of which your teeth are part of that system. And that's what we can see. So the pitting, the streaking, the yellowing that we're seeing on the teeth of these children is where we can see it on the surface. It's in their bones. It's in your bones, too, if you're drinking the water the way they want you to. Back to the article. Health officials note that most communities have fluoride in their water supplies, and toothpaste has it, too. Some kids are even given fluoride supplements because we've been told to by the government, all right? The U.S. Department of Health and Human Services is announcing a proposal to change the recommended fluoride level to 0.7 milligrams per liter of water, and the EPA will review whether the maximum cutoff of 4 milligrams is too high. Oh. So they say, you know, if you have more than 4 milligrams in your water, it's too high. Maybe that's too high is what they're saying here. The standard since 1962 has been a range of 0.7 to 1.2 milligrams per liter. But again, there's a maximum of four. There's a big difference between 0.7 milligrams and four. Coffee made with fluoride-free water probably has about 0.7 milligrams fluoride in it or more by itself. Tea made with fluoride, real black tea, right? Typical tea, not herbal tea, uh, would typically have a 0.5 or 0.05 to 0.5. So there's some fluoride naturally out there that's in these ranges. Folks, what I'm telling you, and I've been telling you, is, is a fact. Fluoride is a toxin. It is a poison. 
If you get any tube of toothpaste and read it, it will say if you swallow more than a recommended dose for brushing your teeth with, contact Poison Control Center immediately. If you go out and find most packages of rat poison, you will find one ingredient in them, sodium fluoride. Fluoride is a poison. It is a poison that our body can deal with in moderate amounts and does deal with because it naturally occurs. Naturally occurring fluoride isn't any better than unnaturally occurring fluoride. It's the amount and the sustained amount and how much our body can process based on our evolution as a species on the planet. And fluoride dumbs people down. So I believe that we evolved away from fluoride. Places with extremely high amounts of fluoride naturally occurring in the groundwater, the people there were dumber and more passive, and they were overrun by the other people. And if they stayed there, they subject to the same thing too. We evolved as a species on a very small amount of this stuff. And it can and will improve dental health when applied at specific rates, topically, but to drink fluoride and expect it to fix your teeth It's like drinking suntan lotion and expecting it to not get you sunburned. So I'll link to this article. It's been everywhere, though. It's been on all the news outlets. Everybody's talking about it. I imagine Alex Jones, is. I haven't heard him, so I'm not being fair, but I imagine that he's probably claiming that he single-handedly caused this at this point. Uh, and, and this is one of the things that Alex has been dead on about. Sometimes I beat up on Alex, but this is a case where... You know, maybe his reasoning behind why they're doing it. They're doing it to kill you all. They want you all dead and dumb. Okay, I think it's too far. But as far as blowing the alarm, he's been dead on. And if you needed proof that there's a danger here, when the government takes something that's done for 50 years or more, and says, uh, maybe we need to scale that back, you know that it's worse than they're admitting, and they're afraid and they're protecting their ass. And it's because too many people have waken up And they've asked, or woken up is a way to say that. Too many people have woken up and started asking questions, going to their local places and saying, hey, what about all these reports? Hey, I'm going to sue your freaking city if you don't stop putting this poison in our water supply. I want, at least in, in the town council, I want you guys to read this stuff. Right? I want this admitted. I want people to know. Because here's all these scientific reports. So, folks, we're not nuts. And I've been telling you that getting a technology like a Berkey filter and getting this crap out of your water is a good idea. Now you have proof that I'm not nuts. I'm actually right about this. Son of a gun. Let's go ahead and take another one. M.D. Creekmore, who writes the uh, Survivalist blog, sent me this one. And uh, it's at the survivalistblog.net. And again, I'll link to his article from today's show notes. He, he said, I thought you might want to share this with your listeners. And I do, because it's a very well-written article. It's called Winning Tactics to Avoid Getting Ripped Off at the Gun Shop. I'm not going to read this whole article, uh, but I'm going to give you like his big bullet points and what I think of them. Number one, do your research. Uh, absolutely, uh, to a degree. Um, having a basic idea of what guns trade for is a good idea, um, but unless you go to a real shady gun shop, and you look at you know uh, a Beretta M9, Uh, if you look at a, a Glock 19, they're, they're going to be reasonably priced in about the same range. Uh, you really maybe need to do more research about pricing when you're looking at used weapons because they'll say, well, this normally sells for $700, but um, 
it's been used. How hard has it been used? What are the wear marks on it? Things like that. So uh, that there's some there. Kind of tying into it, but I think this is the really. I think this is maybe the most important one out of all of his things. Know what you want before you go shopping. If you walk into a gun store and you don't really know what you want, you'll probably buy something that you don't really need and uh, doesn't really fit your needs, and you'll probably overpay for it because. It doesn't matter whether you got a good deal or not on it. If it's not really a good fit for you, you've bought something and spent money, and now to get what fits you, you have to buy something else. So actually making a decision, I am looking for the model and, and make would be best, but at least knowing I'm looking for a compact semi-automatic handgun uh, for daily carry would be a hell of a lot better than going, I need something for defense. You know, because if you want a handgun for defense in your home and you're not going to carry it because maybe you live in a state where you can't carry it or you're going to want a handgun that you're going to carry, I'm going to have completely different recommendations for you. Everything we do to scale that weapon down and make it more concealable and easier to carry takes weight away from it, makes it harder to shoot, makes it harder to control. And if it's going to be in your nightstand or under your mattress or in a gun safe in the home that you're going to grab in the event of an invasion, I don't care about concealability one bit. So I'm going to maximize control, knockdown power, uh, things like that. Um, next one, what do you want it for? It, it's almost the same, but a little bit different. What are you going to do with it? Conceal carry, shoot squirrels, shoot bears, shoot deer. I mean, you know, that's, that's a huge one. Next one he says is you can't do it all. There's no one do-it-all firearms. Stop looking for one gun to do everything. Completely agree. That's why I usually talk about a basic four-gun battery as kind of your starting point, and then you specialize from there. So, you know, to me, that's a good, solid self-defense handgun. Uh, and, again, it's either designed to be concealed carry or not, depending on your situation. Uh, it's a good .22 rifle. It's a good centerfire rifle, and it's a good shotgun. And from there, we can pretty much do anything we need to do, and now we can specialize if we want a, a, a shotgun more suited to turkey hunting or waterfowl hunting, or we want a centerfire rifle that we're going to be taking trips up to Alaska and hunting moose, and we need something with more knockdown power than you know the the uh, the, 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 the 3006 that we're using for deer hunting, or the 270 or whatever it is that we've filled that niche with. So great advice. Price doesn't always mean quality. I agree except until we go to the extreme bottom edge. There's some stuff out there that's really cheap and kind of junky. But most firearms are very well made, honestly, because you have to build a firearm well or you risk extreme uh, liability with any kind of, you know, like a gun blowing up on somebody. So there's not a lot of unsafe guns. It's accuracy, reliability. Those are the two big ones. If you find that a weapon by the people that, and not the people bashing it because it's cheap, they don't own one and never touched one. But if you find the people that actually own and use a weapon, say hey, this thing's accurate and reliable, it's probably a decent buy. You don't have to overpay for weapons. Um, a perfect example would be Savage Rifles, one of the most inherently accurate out of the box rifles ever built. Uh, the, you know, the, the Savage 10 and the 110. Um, great rifles. Uh, they have new versions of them now. They cost a little bit more. They've moved up a little bit more in line with the Remingtons and the Winchesters. Still a great value. And tons of the, of the old Savage rifles out there on the used market for sale. Unless somebody bent it around a tree, it's probably still a great shooter. So price doesn't always mean quality. I uh, completely agree. Fit, feel, recoil, and other considerations. Absolutely. I say especially with guns you're going to carry and use for defense. 
Go to a range where they let you rent guns and rent everything you're considering buying. And if they don't rent that model, ask them what's the most, uh, the closest thing to it they will rent you. Shoot it before you buy it, especially with a carry weapon. Uh, take a class. Completely agree, especially as a new shooter. Great article. You can read the whole thing at the survivalistblog.net. Again, I will link to it. And MD Creekmore runs a great blog over there. So check him out from time to time. Let's go ahead and take another one. This comes from a listener called Brian, and he has a link to a place we don't talk about a lot on the Survival Podcast and Gadget. Um, cause they're kind of technology oriented, and that's not generally what we're talking about here. And this one disturbs me, and I, as first I've heard of it, And I think that we need to go on a full court press with our representatives in, in, the, in the government because this is being done by executive action. Legislators need to step in and stop this. I don't think they will, but I think we need to make the attempt. I don't like this at all. And the long-term uh, repercussions of this, I'm sure it'll be soft-sold at first, but this this stinks. You all, some of you won't believe it when I, when I read uh, what it says. Um, Brian just says, In, in all caps, do not like. And then the headline, Obama administration moves forward with a unique Internet ID for all Americans. Commerce, De Commerce Department to head up the system. And then there's a link, and it goes to Engadget. And here's what it says. President Obama has signaled that he will give the United States Commerce Department the authority over a proposed national cybersecurity measure that would involve giving each American a unique online identity. Other candidates mentioned previously to head up the new system have included the NSA and the Department of Homeland Security. But the announcement that the Commerce Department will take the job should please groups that have raised concerns over security agencies doing double duty in police and intelligence work. So anyway, what about this, what, it, what about this unique ID we'll all be getting? Well, though the details are pretty, still pretty scant, U.S. Commerce Secretary Gary Locke, speaking at an event at the Stanford Institute, stressed the new system would not be akin to a national ID card or a government-controlled system, but that it would enhance security and reduce the need for people to memorize dozens of passwords online. You know what? I can memorize my own passwords online. And there's already technology that does this voluntarily. It's called OpenID. Let me read the rest of it, and then I'll go more on that. Um, and then the guy says, Sorry, Locke, sounds like a national ID to us. Anyway, the Obama administration is currently drafting what it dubbed as the National Strategy for Trusted Identities in Cyberspace, which is expected at the Department of Commerce in a few months. We'll keep you posted if anything terrifying or cool happens. I've read some other articles on it where they're saying things like, it won't be required. You'll still be able to be anonymous if you want to. Again, open ID. Right now they have Facebook, you know, almost every site, That's, that's heavy into social networking will let you tie into your Twitter or your Facebook account. Facebook's pretty, you know, if it says you're John Smith, you're probably John Smith on Facebook. You know, because you have to have friends that vouch, that's him, that's, that's who he is. He, he said that we really did have, you know, I mean, come on. But why does the government really care whether or not I can memorize my passwords? Maybe so they can get into all my information and see everything. And I'm supposed to feel better? I'm supposed to feel better because instead of the NSA looking at my stuff, the, the Commerce Department's going to. Commerce Department. Huh. So instead of, you know, 
And see, here's what I always say about them. When I, when I, when I say negative things about Alex Jones and people get upset, what I say is we believe the same things are happening. We believe they're happening for different reasons. Alex Jones believes that many of these things are happening so they lock you up and put you in an internment camp and kill you and depopulate the south of the southern gold states. And it's a plan for eugenics to kill us all. And I say they're doing it for money. They're doing it for money. So why would the Commerce Department want to know everything that you're doing on the Internet when they are dealing with, with the exchanges of money? Because maybe they, oh, I know. Oh, wait, wait. Oh, this might sound crazy. This might sound totally freaking nuts. But hear me out. Maybe the Commerce Department wants to track all the financial transactions to make sure that not one thin red cent, not one did red cent that goes around online avoids being taxed. Maybe they want to make sure that they get every single penny squeezed out of the American people for the government. And maybe when new taxes are instituted and implemented and people have come to see the, the net as a way to avoid taxation, such as if I buy from a, co a company in California, I don't pay Texas sales tax or California sales tax, and that burden is removed from both of us. Maybe they want to close the loop on that. Maybe they want to come up with new ways to tax us because they know that they're economically screwed. And maybe the Commerce Department was the plan for this all along, or am I a conspiracy nut? Most of the malicious things you see done in the world today by government And corporations, either solely by government, solely by corporations, or in the other article I read on this, they're calling for the private sector to get involved. So the government and the private sector together, fascism, it's not to kill you, it's to make money for the state, the corporation, and most of the time, both. Never attribute to malice, that which can be explained through incompetence is one thing, And I will tell you, never attribute to extreme malice that which can be explained by purely a profit gain. And if you happen to get sick, or you happen to die, or you happen to get damaged, as long as I can legally protect myself and I don't go liable, I'll do it. That's what these people are doing. And this is something we need to shut down. And it is an invasion of our privacy no matter what they say. And unless you think it's a good idea... For you, for you to have a national internet ID that the government has access to and knows, unless you think it's a good idea, idea, you should probably pick the phone up today and call the three ass clowns that work for you that go to Washington, your two your two senators and your rep, and say you want this thing opposed by the legislature. And if they don't do it, you're going to be just as upset about it as whatever else. They said they would do for you. And there's plenty of things they're doing up there. Even the new Republican majority is backing off of some of its promises already. Oh, shocking. But this one, folks, this is... I hate to sound alarmist. This is Orwellian. It really is. When we start looking to a point where our government has a way to track our activities online, and they're already doing it. Understand this. Right now, there's... there's but where... It's absolutely what they're going to look at it this way. Right now, tracking people online is track like tracking airplanes flying through the sky uh, with just plain radar and kind of knowing the schedules and being able. Eventually, you can figure it out and you pretty much know that that blip is a 747 leaving Logan Airport headed to Los Angeles. 
But inside of all those planes, they have a transponder that transponds a number so that they absolutely know what that blip is. And we know if it deviates, it's much easier to keep a lid on things and to keep planes from smashing into each other in space. Well, that's a good idea. But now what they want to do is take all 300 million of us in America and tag us with a transponder. That's what this really is. It's disgusting, it's revolting, and we should resist it at every opportunity. For people that want to be able to say, I am who I say I am, there's open ID and there's a lot of other things out there. And if any private sector company wants to build something like that, that's 100% voluntary, so that what your activities are, you can, you can justify for whatever reason you want to as a private individual, that's really me, fine. But I get on the show every day and I tell you who I am and where I'm from and anybody that wants to find me can find me. I'm not hiding from anybody. But I, I'm damn well not going to have my government paying attention to every single thing I do online with 100% accuracy where they can basically just say, follow transponder number, citizen number, 119375.4. And everything I, because what they want to do eventually, it will never be this seduction before tyranny. Seduction into tyranny is the way to put it. Instead of coming down and going, you will have this or you won't get on, they'll kind of coax you into it, and then they'll say some event that is proven now, oh, they, they hacked into the NSA, and we need this, and from now on to even get on the Internet in the United States, you're going to need one of these. You don't have to have one. It's voluntary. But if you want to get on the Internet, you're going to have to have one. That's the goal long term. We need to put a lid on this crap now. This is too far. If you, I know I'm ranting a little bit. I'm sorry. I'll try to cover the rest of what I have. But this really pisses me off. And it's being done with executive authority because he knows damn well that ass clown of Washington, who's, who's, if we don't vote this guy out in 2012, I don't know what the hell's wrong with the American people. Even though I know whoever we get is going to be just as bad in some ways. This guy's got to go. And I was the one that said, give him a chance when he came into office. Let's at least see what he does before we bash him. He's got to go. He's got to freaking go. Because he knows if he tried to push this as a law through the legislative process, through the people's representatives, it would never fly. Well, it's time for the people's representatives to go in and put a choke collar on this ass clown and say, no, you're not going to do that. And maybe you should call your state reps too and have your states do some resolutions and say, not in our state. You're not bringing that shit here. Our citizens have a right to to be anonymous. I'm sorry, I'm all worked up now. Anyway, I'm going to let it go. We'll talk about it more in the future, I'm sure. Keep an eye on this one. This one's dangerous. The last one, and I bring it up more not just to protect yourself at the grocery store and know what you're buying, because I figure that's on us anyway. When we're making decisions, do I buy this brand or that brand or this or that, and and we, you know the packaging sizes, it's up to us to say, well, what am I really paying per pound or per ounce? Um, but economically, this explains things like where's the inflation? And we keep saying there's going to be inflation. Uh, again, Dini from Country Consultant sent this in and asked me if I talk about how they use um, tricks and techniques basically to hide this. This is a Hub Pages article. And one thing they do is they reduce the, the package size. So let's say that you had normally been buying uh, a block of cheese from Kraft. And I'm not saying Kraft has done this. I don't think they have. In fact, it's why I bring them up because I, 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 we buy Kraft cheddar cheese all the time, the sharp blocks. They're eight-ounce blocks. Well, one thing they could do is make it a little thinner and shorter, make it look almost exactly the same and reduce it to, say, 7.5 or 7 ounces, and then charge the same price. 
And for the average person that walks through the grocery store every week and grabs the bar, throws it in the cart, well, they don't even notice it. They notice when the price goes up, I've been paying $3.99 for this and that's $4.19. But when it stays $3.99, there's just less in it, that, that's a big one. The next one is what uh, in this article calls deception, and that's where they just remove some ingredients. So you've been buying that box of cereal that's been fortified with vitamins. You bought it for years and years and years. It's become a staple in your home, and that's one of the reasons you bought it. Not that I think that's a good way to get your vitamins, by the way. This is just an example. Um, and then they take the vitamins out, and they just take the fortified with vitamins off the label. But you've been buying the, you know, the checks or whatever, flakes or whatever it is forever. The kids like it, so you just keep buying it. But their cost of production now has gone down extremely. You say, what's an ounce of cheese or a little less vitamins? Well, if you're in the food industry and you're making, you know, a hundred million items of something on a run and distributing all over the United States, it's a massive savings for them. The next one is dilution. Um, and they have a can of dehydrated water on there. But what they mean is that maybe they'll increase the amount of water in something. You know, like sometimes you'll buy a piece of meat. And it'll say this product has been enhanced with a solution of, of 11% by weight and it includes certain flavorings, but the big thing in it's water. So when you look at the package, uh, you know, uh, a certain amount of it is actually water weight. And when you cook it, or even as you open it, the water's going to run out of it. Or when you cook it, the water's going to cook out of it. And you're really paying for, for, for less than you think you are. You're getting, you're getting less than you are, you think you are for your money. Well, if I'm already doing that, I just add a little bit more. So I go from instead of being a 3% solution to a 7% solution. And I still sell, sell by weight at the same price. And there's a lot of other ways to do that. Um, and, and there's some other things. You know, one, one that's a really, I never thought of this one. Um, I really, really never thought of this one. Uh, expiration dates. So the manufacturer simply says, well, you know, this product really has a six-month shelf life. We're going to say it's three-month shelf life. So that people will be more apt to have a little bit left and throw it out and buy more before they really need to. And that's what I've always said. Every manufacturer, when you look at that shelf life, covers their ass with shelf life. They're gonna do, you're gonna hedge a little bit, uh, to the safe side. They're not gonna push it right to the edge. If you, you gotta look at it this way. You've got a box of something unopened on your shelf. And it expires on January 10th today. Yesterday it was okay, perfectly safe. Today you'll die if you eat it. That never made sense. Of course it doesn't make sense. And of course it makes sense that manufacturers would have to pick a date to say, I'm no longer responsible. In good times when money's flowing and competition is high, right? Well, I want my shelf life to be as long as possible. That might be a decision a buyer looks at. But then I realize that most people, unless they're preppers, they don't even look at this. You know, how many people really... When you're buying a box of something and there's a great big stack of it, look to the very back of the stack and go, okay, look at this one. This is the latest stuff to come in because that's what the stores do. They put the, the oldest stuff to the front and the, and the newest stuff in the back. And unless you're a prepper, you would probably never even look at that. So what do you think the average sheep does? Well, the average sheep buys the box graham crackers, doesn't even, I mean, it's on the front, it must be good. And if it expires in 60 days, they're in the counter and they're going through their pantry and making their shopping list. They pull the graham crackers out. Only half of them are eaten. They don't even remember when they bought it. Expired oh, two days ago. Got to throw this away. Got to get rid of this. Or maybe we can stretch it a week, but oh, it's been opened and that's passed. Next, we got to throw this away. And there's a place to throw stuff away, folks. There really is. When it's been around too long. 
But as preppers, we know that number can be stretched. What the manufacturers do now is accelerate it to get people to buy more food. So it's, it's something to be on the lookout for with making smart purchases. But most of you guys, if you're storing food, you're probably looking at things like expiration dates anyway and trying to get the newest into the store. Like especially at Sam's uh, and Costco, usually the food is stacked like on pallets. And if you'll pull one out of the bottom, you can usually add six months to your storage life. I've said that before. But now it's being used to hide inflation. So these are all ways that a company can continue to sell you something and, uh, and sell it for the same price, but you're actually getting less. She also sent me another link to just a synopsis of an article that's going to be in Consumer Reports February edition. And... Uh, <clears throat> Here's what it says. Georgia reader Brian Pertino looked at his Angel Soft toilet tissue labeled our thickest ever and fumed. One roll had 352 sheets per roll. The new roll just had 300 and they were narrower. I shouldn't say, I should say our smallest he grasped. So here's what they did. They made the toilet paper a little bit thicker as a selling point, but they made the roll a little bit more narrow and took less sheets off it. So the price of production went down and then they sell for the same price. The uh, synopsis continues. From toothpaste to tuna fish, hot dogs, and hand soap, companies have been shaving ounces and inches from packaged goods for years, usually blaming it on rising costs for ingredients and energy. They've got a point. Higher commodity and fuel costs are expected to cause a spike in food prices by as much as 3% in 2011. If you believe 3%, they're lying. They're peeing in your boot and telling you it's raining, and you're believing them. It's going to be more than 3%. But if manufacturers are skimping when costs go up, why aren't they more generous when costs hold steady or fall? No one likes a price hike, but what riles readers are the ways manufacturers hide their handiwork, indenting the bottom of containers, a favorite trick among peanut butter processors, making plastic wraps thicker or making plastic wraps thinner or whipping cream so that you are paying for air instead of ingredients. So, There you go, kind of the last one to be aware of. And when people ask you, where's the inflation that we've been talking about, some of it's sitting right on the store shelves, and it's just hidden. So with that, I'll wrap up today. I am still struggling with my voice. It's better than last week. Uh, I had to pause there and get a drink of water. I think you probably heard it starting to fade there at the end. Um, But I am getting better with that, and I think maybe by the end of this week we'll be full on bore and back to my old self. Uh, well, on the note of health, uh, at 2 o'clock this afternoon, I'm interviewing Patriot Nurse. She will be on tomorrow's TSP talking about putting together your home medical emergency kit, uh, the things that we can do as civilians, the things that we can't do, additional training we can get, a real get great show about planning for our health and our sanitation needs and our medical needs going into kind of a major collapse if we ever have that, or minor things that happen every day and how to be prepared for those. Uh, tomorrow evening, I will be interviewing David Crawford. So he will be on probably Thursday morning uh, to talk about his uh, new, or not new book, book's been around forever, but a newly released hard copy of Lights Out, the story where he got some of the uh, motivations behind it, the things that he's doing, uh, and the things that he does in his daily life as a prepper. This is a guy that a lot of us know about through his work, but we don't really know the guy. So we're going to talk to the guy as well uh, as a fellow member of the survival and modern survival communities about what he does and what he sees for the future and, and, and a lot of the impetus behind his book and what he hopes people get out of it. Uh, that'll be really cool. So we got a great slate of shows lined up for today. 
Um, and uh, we'll also be doing uh, this week, in between those two interviews, I will be doing the second show on Herbal Actions. So last week I did a show on Herbal Actions, 10 of them. There's 40 I want to go over with uh, you, you guys with. So it'll probably be Wednesday that that show will come out. So a lot of great stuff coming, uh, different stuff. I'm doing all I can to keep Survival Podcast evolving and bringing new material to you. Sometimes I'm going to roll things back and go back to basics and talk about basic food storage rules and things that we've done before because we have new listeners that come in every day. And not all of them can find the things or, you know, maybe they're kind of overwhelmed with the total number of episodes. It's going to be 600 episodes before the end of the month. That's a lot to go through and try to find when you don't even know what you're looking for. So I'll always roll back once in a while and do some basics and point people towards some old articles uh, or old, old episodes. But I also want to keep things evolving. And I have a lot of plans for some really cool new stuff. You guys have to be patient with me. I have to move. Right? I, I got to get my kid out of the house this week. I got to get myself out of the house next week. We got to go up to Arkansas. There may be a few days without shows next week. Um, while everybody's out of shot show, I'm going to be finishing my flooring up, trying to get carpeting installed, talking to the uh, the satellite people, trying to get as much done as I can. Because hitting the ground February, we're trying to move as much out of here as we can between now and the first or second week of February. And by mid February, I want this house empty and being showed. Uh, so I can move up to the bug out location. Once that's all done, man, I've got some. I've been getting some great ideas from you guys. Uh, we're going to be doing more interview shows. My wife's going to be more involved with what's going on. Big things are ahead. But for right now, for the next, let's say, 30 to 45 days, it's going to be all I can do to keep the ball in the air. But I will keep that ball in the air because I love doing what I do and I love helping you guys. Keep the questions, keep the emails, keep the phone calls. Keep it all coming, and I will do whatever I need to do to keep it coming from my end. Cold or no cold, move or no move, bug out or no bug out, disaster or not, I'm going to be here working hard for you. And with that, this has been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. Sometimes we forget we are what we eat. I don't know the answer. It's like there's nothing I can do. It's the price we pay, I guess, and we follow all the rules. There's a better way to do this. Let me show you a better way.
Yeah.